er en gedel sies is minlam firkin forja arai roed gileir, ahas arim gref sifi in um, tiogt, tigim gamaku, gruhukas ato sif agas se. Agig an am kene dar nui an over ato mida fli tronona, to sifir hovogd agda kursis dara, agas kursis lonchen nitirisha go heaks. May I just say, first of all, how welcome you all are, uh, distinguished guests that we've gathered here this afternoon uh, for this seminar. I intend to have some more seminars uh, dealing with what I feel are important intellectual issues that need to be debated uh, in the interests of the Irish people. <coughs> but as I have just said in Irish, I wanted to wish you all a very warm welcome to Oris and Uthron. And thank you for taking the time to join us here at relatively short notice for people that I know are very busy and in so many different ways. Together this afternoon, we're marking a, a century since the end of one of the world's worst ever recorded pandemics, that of the so-called, indeed miscalled, as we will hear, Spanish influenza. I do want to pay particular thanks, if I may, to Dr. Ida Mellon of Carlow College, Dr. Patricia March of Queen's University, Belfast, and Professor Guy Beiner of Ben-Gurion University, Israel, for agreeing to speak at today's event at AG, repeat again at short notice. I'm so grateful. And I also want to thank the School of Histories and Humanities at Trinity College, Dublin, and the Glasnevin Trust for their exhibition materials that are displayed here today. Just over 100 years ago, as the First World War was drawing to a fitful close, an influenza virus unlike any before or since swept across the world, failing soldiers and civilians alike. The global death toll was inconceivable. According to the most recent estimates, which put it between 50 million and 100 million people worldwide, that perished in three pandemic waves between the spring of 1918 and the winter of 1919, making it one of the deadliest natural disasters in human history. Indeed, the pandemic caused mortality that was similar in scale to that which resulted from the Black Death in the 14th century. If one adjusts for population growth, the death toll would be equivalent in terms of impact to between 200 million and 425 million deaths today. As with other 20th century epidemics and pandemics such as HIV AIDS, Africans and Asians suffer proportionately more than Europeans and North Americans. Thus, while the average case mortality in what we term the developed world was about 2%. In India, where 18.5 million perished, it was 6%. And in Egypt, where 138,000 died, it was 10%. In isolated regions in which populations had no immunity to flu, the impact was truly astonishing. In western Samoa, for example, a quarter of the population died, while in Alaska, some entire Inuit communities died as a result. Infectious disease had already limited life expectancy in the early 20th century. However, in the first year of the pandemic, life expectancy in the United States was shortened by about 12 years as a direct result. Mark Honingsbaum, the author of Living with Insa, The Forgotten Story of Britain and the Great Flu Pandemic of 1918, has written extensively about the pandemic's probable origin 
Few epidemiologists believe the pandemic began in Spain, pointing instead to pre-pandemic waves in Copenhagen and other northern European cities in the summer of 1918. Where the virus first leapt from birds to humans or some other mammal is even more perplexing, with some scientists favouring a Kansas point of origin and others northern France or China. Spanish flu was so-called because neutral Spain was one of the few countries in 1918 where correspondents were free to report on the outbreak. To maintain morale in countries at war, wartime censors minimised early reports of illness and mortality in Germany and the United Kingdom, France and the United States. Papers were free to report the epidemic's effects in neutral Spain, such as, for example, the grave illness of King Alphonse XIII, and this created the false impression of Spain as especially hearted, thereby giving right to the pandemic's moniker, the Spanish flu. <coughs> in, 2000, in a 2007 analysis of medical journals from the period of the pandemic, it was found that the viral infection itself was not more aggressive than any previous influenza, but that the special circumstances of the context, both structural and contingent, of the epidemic, I speak of malnourishment, overcrowding, med overcrowded medical camps and hospitals, poor hygiene, promoted bacterial superinfection that would kill most of the victims, typically after prolonged de deathbed. However, there remain many mysteries associated with the pandemic, perhaps chief of which relates to why the Spanish flu proved so deadly to young adults. Here, present-day science has some interesting hypotheses to offer, but really it appears no conclusive answers. One suggestion is that the elderly had enjoyed greater immunity because as children they'd been exposed to a pandemic virus with a similar genetic makeup to what was called the Spanish flu. Conversely, those aged 28 and over had an immunological blind spot because their first exposure had been to the 1890 Russian flu, a virus with a completely different configuration of, of genes. I think at this stage I should also say uh, about one of my personal family connections to the, to the, to the flu. Uh, it is the case that... Um, the young boy you see here, that is a, an image there of my grandmother and to my mother in a white dress and my uncle Thomas on, on the far side. And the young boy in the front is Daniel Canty. He was the third child of uh, uh, the woman you see in the picture. Uh, the, my mother was born in 1899. He was my uncle that survived 1900. And a, a child had been lost in 1906, aged eight, nine months. But the young boy you'll see who died in the second wave of the flu uh, on uh, the 2nd of November 1918. He had, there's an interesting story as to context in many ways. He was uh, in, in St. Coleman's College in Fermoy, and uh, I think. Uh, where that family lived was in the market square in Liscara. It, it figures much later in relation to both the War of Independence and the Civil and the Civil War. But he came, uh, he came, uh, led a, a group in uh, Saint Coleman's College and for my protesting against conscription, and decided that he would go home to Liscara to organise an event. And his mother 
when you couldn't work out the reasons later, uh, decided because it was a junior seminary he should go straight back. And he went back and contracted the flu and died a few days, uh, days, uh, few days later. He is buried in my mother's uh, family grave in Deligia in the parish of Milford in Colbelan in 1918. It is very interesting too, I can't deal with, just not, deal with it just now, but uh, one has to think of the year in which this is taking place, in November 1918 and 1919. Uh, at the end of the year, you would have the proscribing of the Gatol Aaron. Uh, my mother was then at this stage uh, um, a secretary of the local branch of Cumanamon. Uh, Thomas, who was my, my uncle, would be later arrested with my father. And it's a huge complex of nationalism and also recovery from the war, people coming home to County Cork from the first war, and then all of this. And then I think on those days in Fermoy, the Vincent de Paul were uh, uh, distributing beef and milk uh, to, the, uh, to the people in Fermoy itself who had contracted the flu. And it, returning to my text, uh, uh, I think an, another explanation posited by Honingsbaum is that the unusual mortality pattern that is of affecting the young seen in 1918 was the result of the and as yet unidentified environmental exposure or stressor peculiar to young adults at the time. Answering these questions is important because genes from the Spanish flu continue to circulate in human and pig populations to this day. And some of these genes are direct descendants of the 1918 virus. Others have reasserted with other pandemic viruses, such as the 1968 Hong Kong flu and the virus responsible for the 2009 swine flu pa uh, pandemic. Present here, I realise, as I say, there are many experts in this area. The pandemic reached Ireland most likely in the spring of 1918, as troops sailing home took the flu into Dublin and Cork. The first recorded outbreak was in the USS Dixie off Cove. In May, from the ports then, the disease swept across Ireland in three waves, mild in spring 1918, lethal in autumn 1918, and moderate in early 1919. It disrupted Irish society and politics, as has been skilfully recounted by Dr Ida Milne, whom I'm delighted is here with us today, her doctoral research in Trinity College, which has been published uh, under the title Stacking the Coffins, Influenza, War and Revolution in Ireland, 1918-19. to is the first Irish history of the disease that includes statistics where an attempt is made to analyse which groups were most affected. It is all the more valuable for also for drawing from the personal accounts of individuals affected. As I say this, I'm very conscious of the caveats that must attend personal accounts as sources of history. I think in all of this, the book tells of how the pandemic created a stillness in cities and towns as it passed through, closing schools, courts and libraries, quelling trade, cramming hospitals and stretching medical doctors to their limit as they treated hundreds of patients each day. Dr Milne also reveals how the pandemic became part of a major row between nationalists and the government over interned anti-conscription campaigners. There is, of course, uh, the, the, the death of a very significant figure, Mr. Coleman, in the, which, who had figured previously in the 1916 rebellion. And that's a whole 
important area in itself than maybe others will deal with. Indeed, Dr Milne and Dr Patricia March from Queen's University Blast, whom I'm very glad to tell you is also here, have analysed how across the whole island of Ireland there were more than 23,000 recorded deaths as a result of the virus, a conservative figure, as is mentioned at the time. However, due to a lack of diagnosis and documentation, it is thought that up to 800,000 people in Ireland, about one in five of the population at the time could have been infected. I'm so pleased as well to welcome this afternoon some family members of those who died tragically and of central figures who helped those affected by the pandemic in Ireland, as well as others involved in preventing and combating pandemics today. Raises whole other issues of the number of people who place themselves in advancing humanitarian assistance and out of commitment, place themselves in danger at a personal level. But I wish to focus today on the legacy of the Spanish flu pandemic in terms beyond the scientific unresolved mysteries and devastating statistics to which it gave rise. By this I mean I'd like to consider the link between the pandemic and indeed other tragic historical events and human memory. I believe this is a worthwhile endeavour because the Spanish flu began to fade from public awareness quite quickly especially over the decades of the 20th century, until the arrival of news about bird flu and other pandemics in the 1990s and 2000s. Indeed, despite the fact that it claimed many more lives than the Easter Rising, the War of Independence and the Civil War combined, the Great Flu was rarely incorporated into the narrative of 20th century Ireland. And this has led some historians such as A.W. Crosby and Katrina Foley to label the Spanish flu a forgotten pandemic. I'm so glad as well that Dr Mary Jones is here as well, and I know of her work, and I'm very, very proud of the fact that Television Aguilga actually, in 2008, had such a very good documentary on this issue. The challenge of remembering ethically, uh, to which I would now add as well, uh, the challenge of being allowed to forget, was a significant part of the ethics initiative which I launched as the second president, as my second president of Ireland initiative in the last seven years. In addressing the need to remember ethically, I had turned to the philosophical writings of Hannah Arendt, Paul Ricker, uh, Avishai Margulit and Richard Carney, among others. The emphasis was perhaps on the need to respect a pluralism of narratives of shared events, including sources of conflict, its delivery, consequences, as material for any revived hate, fear, xenophobia, or indeed by some necessary but rather rare forgiveness. The concept of collective memory, initially developed by Halbox, has been explored and expanded from various angles across different disciplines of research. Our collective memory of events can be constructed, shared and passed on by large and small social groups. Memories survive and take shape through a relationship, after all, with others, evolving over time and open to reinterpretation and reconsideration, sometimes of use and more often maybe often of abuse, as we strive to transact a relationship that will ideally, as Hannah Arendt would put it, release us from the weight of such of past events in such a way as will allow a moving forward, however tentatively, to new beginnings by loosening the lid and what I have called in one of my poems the mouldering jar of memory. 
The historian Professor Guy Biner, whom I'm also very happy to welcome today, is an authority in memory and history in Ireland, has criticised the unreflective use of the adjective collective in many studies of memory in his book Troubles with Remembering, or the seven sins of memory studies. He asserted, the problem is with crude concepts of collectivity, which assume a homogeneity that is rarely if ever present, and maintain that since memory is constructed, it is entirely subject to the manipulations of those invested in its maintenance, denying that there can be limits to the malleability of memory or to the extent to which artificial constructions of memory can be inculcated. In practice, the construction of a completely collective memory is at best an aspiration of politicians, which is never entirely fulfilled but is all, and is always subject to contestation. In its place, Professor Biner, and I agree, has promoted the term social memory and has also demonstrated its limitations by developing a related concept of social forgetting. Why do some major historical events occupy the forefront of the collective consciousness, while profound moments such as the pandemic we are discussing this afternoon sometimes stand distantly behind? Ricoeur reflects in his book, Memory History Forgetting, on whether it is possible that history, quote, overly remembers some events at the expense of others, revealing how this attempted symbiosis of what are contested and conflicting versions and the mould into which they are poured influences both the perception of historic experience and the production of historical narrative. The philosophical paradoxes of memory, the, the aporias of forgetting and the mediating role of history are all issues we need to consider in understanding such a profound, complex and interconnected question. Our ambivalence about remembering perhaps expresses ambivalence about our own identities. The basic dialectic of memory and amnesia is thus, not only about remembering and forgetting certain events or people. Viet Thanh Nguyen argues that in the context of war, it is instead more fundamentally about remembering our humanity and forgetting our inhumanity, while conversely remembering the inhumanity of others and forgetting their humanity. I think this raises a whole other set of questions as to why, for example, in such an exercise it can lead so easily to neglecting what are called the untouched structural causes, including the, un the unaddressed structural causes of the pandemic. And also it can sometimes lead to a form of selectivity. At a certain period of Irish historical writing, there is an emphasis on what are regarded as the kindly relieving landlords that has enabled the whole question of land ownership and landlordism to be left out of the picture, and on it goes. A just memory demands instead, or rather, a final step in the dialectics of ethical memory, not just the movement between an ethics of remembering one's own and remembering others, but also a shift towards an ethic of recognition, of seeing and remembering how the inhuman inhabits the human in both sides of the equation. No wonder then that Jorge Luis Borges, remembering, for, he described as a ghostly verb. Memory is haunted, not just by ghostly others, but by the horrors we have done, seen and condoned, or by the unspeakable things from which we have profited. 
The troubling weight of the past is especially evident when we speak of war and our limited ability to recall it. Haunted and haunting human and inhuman, war remains with us and within us, impossible to forget, but difficult to remember. I am very pleased to realise that one of the great shifts in the last decade has been the abandonment of the title for the First World War as the Great War. Few now would use that title and, and ignore both its sources, its conduct and its consequences. According to Avishai Markelet, shared memory in a modern society travels from person to person through institutions such as archives, through historiographic texts and through communal mnemonic devices such as speeches enunciated by public representatives, monuments and the names of streets. All of these reflect, of course, they are a profile of the distribution of power. Memory indeed constitutes one of the greatest sources of interrogation bequeathed to us by the 20th century, with its cortege of pandemics like the one we're remembering this afternoon, mass crimes and fateful experimentations with totalitarianism. How and what are we to remember? How are individual and collective memories articulated? What must never become the subject of what I have called in the past an amoral amnesia? In what ways does the duty of memory summon us to do justice to the dead? And what is it that has been buried through what I have referred to as an amoral amnesia? To what extent are we to allow ourselves to be changed as we listen to the narrative of the other? What is the relationship between memory and history? These are first-order moral questions. They are central to the work of important thinkers, such as Morris Halbach, of Hannah Arendt and Ricker that I've mentioned, work that I find myself returning to again and again, as I attempt not to in- in- evade, indeed seek to engage, with the challenge, the uncomfortable challenge, of seeking and fumbling with the facts to try and answer such questions. There really can never be a new moment Rather, it is that from the fragments of the old, as in nature itself, something new seeks to be born, often against the impediments of the old, and thus arrives with a scream that in time might become a smile. Edith Wishgrod, in An Ethics of Remembering History, Heterology and the Nameless Others, attempts to answer the question, can the historian ever bring back that which has gone by, ever tell the truth about the past? Wishagrot is concerned with the cataclysm, mass annihilations of the 20th century, such as the flu pandemic, realising the philosophical impossibility of ever occurring. What really happened? Wishagrot nevertheless acknowledges a moral imperative to speak for those who have been rendered voiceless, to give countenance to those who have become faceless, and hope, hope to the desolate. It is a first-class question, I suggest, to ask what is the source and what are the varying contexts that have remained, for example, in the Irish historiographic case, social class as a neglected prism through which our history is understood. I could suggest some sources associated with the centrality of land, property, respectability, a kind of if you like, revived clericalism that concentrated on fear. It is perhaps for another day. Various theories 
or why there is something of a collective amnesia regarding what is called the Spanish flu, included first the rapid pace of the pandemic, which killed most of its victims in the United States, for example within a period of less than nine months, resulting in limited media coverage. Second, the fact that, as the historical epidemiologist Morrissey pointed out, the general population was familiar with patterns of pandemic disease in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, with typhoid, yellow fever, diphtheria and cholera, all occurring near the same time, possibly lessening the significance of the influenza pandemic for the public. Third, in many areas the flu was not reported, because the only mention being that of advertisements for medicines claiming to cure it, as discussed by Benedict and Brathwaite. I should say a surviving Falcon and Irish was the combination of the alternative a combination of whiskey and garlic. Fourth, the outbreak coincided with the deaths and media focus on the First World War, which was occupying most of the column inches, and which took precedence according to A.W. Crosby. And then fifth, related to this, the majority of fatalities from both the war and the epidemic were among young adults, with the deaths caused by the flu potentially overlooked, according to Simonson and others, owing to the large number of deaths of young men in the war as a result of injuries. It seems highly plausible that particularly in Europe, where the war's toll was extremely high, the flu may not have had a, a great separate psychological impact, or may have seemed just another terrible extension of the war's tragedies. The flu-related deaths then appear to have been absorbed into the public consciousness, side by side with those deaths directly attributable to the war. The duration of the pandemic and the war could also have played a role. The disease would usually only affect a certain area for a month before leaving, while the war, which most had initially expected to end quickly, had lasted for four years by the time the pandemic struck. Historian Nancy Bristow has argued that the pandemic, when combined with the increasing number of women attending college at the time, contributed to the success of women in the field of nursing. This was due in part to the inability of medical doctors, who were predominantly men, to contain and prevent the illness. Nursing staff... (coughs) who were predominantly women, felt more inclined to celebrate the success of their patient care and less inclined to identify the spread of the disease with their own work. According to Robin Lindley's The Forgotten American Pandemic, historian Nancy Bristow on the influenza epidemic of 1918. Our consideration today reminds me again of how the interpretation of silences, gaps, exclusions, are in assessing the historiography of this time of the importance of new approaches, great new work represented here this afternoon. Reworkings. We've had such good work on the silence that followed on Gartha Moore. We now are at the edge of dealing with the War of Independence and the Civil War. But there is a continuing thread we ignore. The thread, I suggest, from which respectability is knitted. A garment, the making of which commenced when land was secured. Surplus population gone in involuntary migration. An atmosphere being born from a chesty family damaged marital prospects. But above all, the holding on to of the land. I think of Samuel Beckett's line in Happy Days. Keep yourself nice, Winnie says. I wish to conclude then, if I may, with a short quotation from the philosopher I have drawn so much on, Paul Ricker, who remarked, To be forgotten is to die twice. 
Initiatives such as the one I'm taking today may I hope play a modest and meaningful role in remembering the tragic loss of the millions of lives at global level and the tens of thousands on this island that occurred during a catastrophic event in recent history. And I hope that it will help ensure that these mostly young men and women are not forgotten and are allocated their rightful space in our shared historical memory. And I am very much looking forward to listening to our eminent speakers' contributions to the seminar. And may I wish you a stimulating and thought-provoking afternoon. Mila Buitlis, Gormagi, thank you. <laughs>